I'm really sorry, Jen. There's a cat in my house that's not mine. Give me one second. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 236 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have accidentally bought the biggest knickers in the world. <laughs> As in sailboats are jealous. I'm jealous. Congratulations. What an achievement this early in the year. I fucking love them. I'm basically covered from tits to knees before I put any other clothes on. <laughs> nana knickers. Proper belly warming nana knickers. How, how did this happen, Mickey? I just didn't understand how full a full brief is these big. days, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> it's big. Uh, you have to get, well, you don't have to, obviously, but they do advise that you get giant knickers for after you've had a baby to uh, accommodate the enormous sanitary pads that you have to wear afterwards yeah i've never looked back (laughs) the waistband of them comes up higher than my high-waisted leggings it's joyous and no vpl because they go like below my knees (laughs) well exactly that do you remember when we had to try out those period pants and i was like well these are kind of great because they're they're like in that sense because the the vpl is halfway down my leg and (laughs) mid-stomach I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and you know I hadn't really watched any films when we did a review of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I watched them all over Christmas, all of them. Top tips. Yeah. Any favourites? <sighs> yeah, I mean, Jen is right. The Banshees of Inishirin is was very good. Made me cry a lot, though. And also just shout, why? Why? <laughs> the television a lot. Uh, it's so gloriously Irish. It's that I shall cut my fingers. It's so wonderfully Irish. Anyway, yeah, I quite like the new Knives Off one. I thought that was... Fun. Did you watch that? Is that Glass Onion? Yeah. Yes. Has it got my lovely Daniel Craig in it? Yeah. My lovely Daniel Craig. Best Bond. Yeah. yeah. And also Leslie Odom Jr. Oh, you know. What a oh, cast. Always worth a watch. Janelle Monet. Yeah. Loads of stuff. Can't really remember what any of it is now, but it was all good. Mostly. I just watched Paddington 80 times. That's <laughs> <laughs> Paddington or Paddington 2? Both. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. I mean, at least they're good. They are, to be fair, yeah. I'm Jen Offord, and I'm on the road with supervision of... Well done. In an actual motor car. Yeah, have a first ever (laughs) driving lesson last week. Got another one this week. Yeah, I was dog shit. (laughs) Absolute dog shit. Made me feel quite anxious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that is par for the course, I believe, Jen. Great. Can't wait. Can't wait to be anxious without supervision and shit but hopefully i'll get better we mostly just did the pulling out and parking it's quite a lot to think about isn't it in one go or at least i found it was you know you've got to look you've got a signal you've got a maneuver you've got to understand how a car actually steers which apparently i did yeah. not not like in the films and telly not like maggie from the simpsons <laughs> well i didn't realize why right, that when you turn it i don't know why because it's exactly the fucking same on a bicycle which of course i know how to deal with when you turn the wheel it just continues to go that way it doesn't go that way and then maintain that trajectory no. <laughs> you have to straighten it no. up again who knew yeah. everyone not me <laughs> All I'm going to say, Jen, is making a cup of tea is quite complicated if you write down the list of things that you have to do to make a cup of tea. But eventually you do it without thinking and it's exactly the same. I I did ask the driving instructor at one point, has anyone you've taught ever run a person over during a (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure filled him with immense confidence. My lovely friend, Manda, indeed your lovely friend, Manda, on the day of her driving test, got in the car and waited 
And the driving instructor tapped on the window and was like, you need to be in the driver's seat. (laughs) (laughs) And she passed. So that's great. (laughs) Fingers crossed, guys. Later on, I'm chatting to Sally Wainwright about the third series of Happy Valley, because of course I am. And rightly so. Mm. Oh, glorious stuff. So good. Oh, Sarah Lancashire. Oh. I catch up with comedy double act and fellow Pisceans, Norris and Parker, it's Katie and Sinead to their pals, to talk sirens, the female kind, witches, friendship, and, sorry about this, Hannah, poo. Uh-oh. In Jenny Off The Blocks, we're looking ahead to the next few months of sporting action. And in Rated or Dated, we watch a film about censorship and ask which bits would not make the cut today. <laughs> oh, hello there, 1988's Good Morning Vietnam! But first, pathologists, misogynists and macronists, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. High fives all round. Unless you've been opening a tin with a knife and a hammer, in which case high fours. (laughs) Now that, Jen, if you don't know, is a reference to some of the top tips available in Jack Monroe's book, Thrifty Kitchen. And I actually, I had so many thoughts that I was unable to contain them for BT. So I'm going to write about it in the mail out. So for people who don't get the mail out and you want to know my thoughts on opening a tin with a knife and a hammer, you can sign up to our mail out at our website. I do know what this refers to because we talked about it, but I haven't read the story because I was waiting for Hannah's take on it. So I'm (laughs) looking forward to Wednesday's mail out very much and I'm not going to read up on it until I've read the mail out, Hannah. Thank you. Now, Hannah, you have siblings. I do. I have siblings. What is the worst thing you've ever done to a sibling or had done to you by a sibling? I was I was thinking about this the other day. My parents went to a barbecue at a neighbour's house once and left me and my sister by ourselves. And I think we were about 11 and 12 or something like that. And she had gone into the front garden for something. And I thought it'd be really funny to slam the door in her face when she came back in. And she put her arm out to stop it. And her arm went straight through the glass oh. of the front door and like cut all her arm up. And we had to go and interrupt the barbecue to get my parents back who were livid absolutely livid because not only was my sister bleeding quite heavily but the front door was broken so yeah probably that jen probably that that's quite bad that sort of shits all over me once pushing michael off a climbing frame although that is well i don't know he could have died i suppose he was sort of hanging off it and i was standing at the top and like arrogant fuck he was he was sort of taunting me even though i was in the position of power so I basically I took my shot I actually stood on his hand and um, (laughs) he fell off so you know I almost wish I'd written about it in my book Hannah (laughs) (laughs) that is far more brutal than breaking a necklace or indeed a dog bowl and apparently even those are newsworthy events sadly less brutal than however killing 25 people in armed combat but you know whatevs I've not done that either Jen No, me either. Me either. Okay, the difference here is obviously that neither me nor my brother, or indeed you or your brother or sister, are in the line of succession to the British throne. And our playground squabbles are of little interest to most people. So if you can bear to, Hannah, let's talk about William Harold, the first and fifth in line to the British throne. 
And that is an interesting point because he is, after all, Harold this is, still fifth in line to the throne and very much part of an institution which he has gone to quite extraordinary lengths to criticise in recent months. Yeah. Can you stand down from being in line to the throne? I know obviously you can abdicate, but can you just go, well, I'm not going to be in line to the throne yeah. anymore? Yeah. Okay. Pretty sure so he, he could do that yeah. if he wanted to. And as far as we're aware, he hasn't done that. I mean, I don't think there's a great deal of point in it because I think once no. you're beyond about two and three, you know... It, it... You're unlikely to be called upon. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We're talking, of course, about revelations made by Harry, the Duke of Sussex, a man who wants his privacy so desperately that he's decided to detail the minutiae of life in the Windsor dynasty in his new book, Spare, which is published tomorrow, Tuesday, as we record this. Key revelations leaked ahead of publication and in two planned interviews broadcast in the UK and the US to promote the book include these. The royal family has a relationship with the press. Mm. Okay. Prince William attacked Prince Harry, see dog bowl incident. <laughs> Harry killed 25 Taliban fighters while on tour in Afghanistan. Harry doesn't know the difference related to that point between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Harry lost his virginity oh. in a field. <laughs> of all the ones, that was the one I least wanted to know about <laughs> of all of them. I don't understand why you would feel the need to... I just don't understand. Anyway... And William and Kate encouraged Harry to wear his famous Nazi costume. Totes would have done the same to my brother. Would you? We could probably talk about this for half an hour okay, in let's itself. let's move on then. <laughs> so let's not. But I just, there are more. I, I don't care. And I genuinely, I, I don't care. And Hannah, I know you don't care either. No. And I've, we've talked about this on the podcast before. But there is a serious point to be made here, which Hannah, you've highlighted in previous conversations. Now, there are people who do not want the monarchy to exist. I'm not one of those people, but I understand why people feel this way and I think there are valid arguments to be made on both sides. Harry's argument seems to me to be that he did not get what he wanted out of his immensely privileged position at the heart of the royal family, not that the institution of monarchy is no longer fit for purpose in the modern age. I couldn't agree with that bit more, Jen. I just think... If we are going to redesign the royal family or get rid of the royal family or whatever, it should be done for the benefit of the country, not be done for the benefit of people within that organisation. Because what next? You know, when the French got rid of their royal family, when the Russians got rid of their royal family, obviously we're in a different time now, but, you know, the country was rebuilt around a system that it was generally agreed was going to work more for the people than for the aristocrats and the high up people and the idea that we should change stuff just because... Because the only thing they've got going for them, the royal family, is tradition. If we change tradition and we say tradition doesn't matter, and believe me, I think in this sense tradition doesn't matter, but the point is, if we're saying tradition doesn't matter, Mm. then what else is there? Then they are just people that we choose to decide arbitrarily then are better than the rest of us and deserve the financial support of the rest of us i don't describe myself as a monarchist i don't i don't really care one way or the other but like he's talking about a guy his brother who has since birth been told 
you are this person, you will do this job. Mm. It is our job to defend this institution at all costs because otherwise what are we and what is our place in the world, right? From a basic kind of understanding of human psychology, you would expect him to therefore defend his position in that at all costs, right? Mm. I mean, brothers and sisters, as highlighted already, they do have arguments, they do occasionally push each other into the odd dog bowl, right? Mm. But (laughs) you would expect him to be knocked if there was someone in that situation who was threatening the thing that he's been told his whole life is his reason for being, right? Yeah. And his thing seems to be, and I agree that, like, you know, they have a right to a certain extent to a private life. I agree that they shouldn't be hounded by the press. I agree that they shouldn't face sort of, like, personal attacks just just for being. But his thing seems to be, well, I wanted to have my cake and eat it and I wasn't allowed to do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I absolutely have zero interest in how he lost his virginity or any of that stuff. I just, it makes me, it makes me cringe. It is just, I find that stuff just so cringe. And when people do things that are that cringe, it makes me think less of them. It's very undignified. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm old fashioned or prudish or whatever, but yeah, I just, I just don't, I don't care. If it's a hilarious story that a friend of mine's got about something about their private life, I'll listen. But even my mates, I'm not that really interested in the ins and outs of their sex life. You know, you do you and and I'll do me and we'll just talk about other things instead. (laughs) Fair enough. You've not already heard the quote. I'm not going to mention it about the incident. Prince Harry, that is obviously not not myself. Anyway, should we move on? I mean, I hear it's a yet another notorious grassy knoll, but let's uh, <laughs> let's move on. So yeah, I'm sorry to bring up yet another crisis in terms of public services, but here we are, modern Britain. Hooray! At the end of December, Sky News reported that grieving families were having to wait more than a month to hold funeral services because of a backlog in post-mortems caused by a shortage of pathologists. Sadly, this isn't news to my family, which has been waiting more than a month to bury two of its members. And again, sadly, I'm sure it's not news to some of you listening. So first thing to say is, my sympathies, it's more shit at a time you already thought couldn't be much shitter. According to Sky, a high number of excess deaths in 2022 means pathologists are struggling to cope with what it called a constant onslaught of demand of carrying out vital postmortems so bodies can be released to loved ones for a funeral service. It goes on to quote funeral director David Barrington, a former president of the National Association of Funeral Directors, who said that the country was going through what he called a grief crisis. He added, quote, Families want to say goodbye to their loved ones, to the people that have passed away, and if they can't, it just compounds the grieving process. This delay and backlog just makes it more stressful, and we've had to change how we work. Barrington did go on to clarify what he meant by that, but I'm not going to say it because it's actually quite upsetting, but suffice to say, you cannot visit the body of a loved one before they have a post-mortem. But the truth is, this crisis hasn't erupted out of nowhere Back in April 2021, funeral director Amanda Dolby told the BBC that families were facing delays of up to two weeks when a coroner is involved, which, as a rule, means a sudden or an unexplained death. But way back in September 2018, long before the pandemic, 
A report found that NHS pathology departments were suffering from chronic shortages. The workforce census by the Royal College of Pathologists revealed just three in 100 departments had enough staff to meet clinical demand, a crisis that it said was contributing to NHS cancer diagnosis delays. Of this latest crisis, Royal College of Pathologists chief Professor Michael Osborne told Sky, quote, Postmortems are an area where, if people have to prioritise between cancer work and pressures in the NHS and doing postmortems, which are not part of their NHS work, there may be pressures that mean they are less able to perform those tasks, which are equally important. According to the same Sky report, a government spokesman said, We have taken steps this year to reduce the coroner's court's backlog following the pandemic, including changing the law so that it is faster and easier for coroners to establish if a death is from natural causes without the need for a post-mortem. We are also allowing for fully remote inquest hearings and have invested £6.15 billion to help local authority services, including coroners, to recover from the pandemic. As is so often the case, Jen, it seems like too little, too fucking late. And I wonder how many other aspects of, or areas rather, of the NHS that are going to be in the same situation yeah, now. And, and if I'm totally honest, that quote there, including changing the law so it's faster and easier for coroners to establish a death, is from natural causes. I mean, that's a shortcut, and there will be some people there who maybe won't get an answer when they wanted an answer. You know, natural causes is quite a wide-ranging thing, and it might be helpful for people to find out whether natural causes means something, for example, that might run in the family that it would be well, helpful exactly, to know. Yeah. So, but also, it seems like I don't know. Just just using I don't know a bit of logic here. That seems to me to be there aren't enough coroners in the first place. Yeah. So why didn't we start training people, or you know, putting money into training people when someone warned back in twenty eighteen? that this was fucked. Like I say, modern Britain, isn't it great? Jen, can I interest you in a nice story? I don't know if it counts as a good news story, but I I liked it. You certainly can. Great, because it means that we get to talk about France's president and my secret boyfriend, Emmanuel Macron. (laughs) So, last week, French TV aired an interview with Macron that took place in November, in which he faced some difficult questions from neuroatypical journalists. It was filmed at an event hosted by Le Papotin, a journal founded in 1990 in a Paris region daycare centre for young people with autism. He faced questions about how much money he has, how many friends he has, and what he really thinks of Vladimir Putin. The toughest question, which was actually handed to him on a piece of paper, (laughs) was about his personal life. He is the president, Macron read aloud. He should set the example and not marry his teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from the fact that it was all very charming and does a lot to remind people that autism shouldn't stop young people pursuing whatever career they want. It was actually nice to see journalists asking some tough questions and a politician acting like a human being in response. Got to ask the difficult question to you now, Hannah Dunleavy. Do you fancy him more or less as a result of the interview? Um, And how much money does he have? I don't know. He did say he had less as president than he had when he'd been working in banking, which... I mean, that is Likely true, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, likely true. I mean, he talked about his wife, so yeah, fuck him. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, I am older than him. That's the one thing I've got going for me. So is his wife. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. You can't be much older than him. I'm about four years older than him or something. I don't yeah, think it's enough. I don't think like it's enough. Twenty something years older than him. Oh yeah, like like actually. substantially older than him. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah, <laughs> quite. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but you know they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. Now then, Hannah, can I tell you about some sexism, please? If you must. Listeners will by now no doubt have heard of influencer, in inverted commas, Andrew Tate. I have. If not, he's a social media star, in inverted (laughs) commas, of sorts, famous for producing misogynistic content and more recently, as in currently, for being detained in Romania on suspicion of rape and human trafficking. Nice guy. (laughs) Tate has been banned by pretty much all the major social media platforms, though famously allowed back on Twitter under new policies brought in by Elon Musk. However, and this is going to shock you, Hannah, Andrew Tate is not the only woman-hating wazzock on social media, it seems. No. True story. (laughs) Indeed, an investigation by The Times has found any number of similar influencers slash self-help gurus notching up millions of views spouting hateful content aimed at helping young men who are struggling to form romantic relationships. An article by The Times cites UK-based social media users offering advice such as making girlfriends insecure, stopping them from having male friends, and keeping them, and I quote, compliant. Oh, for fuck's sake. I don't need to spell it out because we all know what that advice amounts to, but for the uninitiated, it's a masterclass in coercive control. And for what? For £7 per course for one such guy who apparently has... 2.6 million TikTok likes. Bargain. £7. Wow. Yeah, £7 to learn how to be a twat. Another British influencer with 1.5 million YouTube subscribers sells a guide called How to Get Girls Without Being Weird and Creepy, (laughs) which will set weird, creepy guys back a mere £400. I would imagine at the end of that, they'll probably be more weird and creepy than ever. Like, the idea of spending £400 on that screams weird and creepy to me, but whatever. There are a lot of these men, and the advice they're offering is disturbing, and we know, we know it feeds into a culture in which women are objectified, controlled and abused. And who else benefits from this content? Well... With hit rates like that, it's the social media companies peddling advertising to the masses. If you want to know more about this and why it should worry us, you can listen to me chat to Dr Lisa Segura in this week's Chops about the online safety bill and what it is and indeed is not doing. In the meantime, if you have a teenage son or daughter, for that matter, at the risk of sounding like the Daily Mail, and I am aware that I do a little bit here, do you know what they're watching on social media? Because it might be time to ask... Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? It's just gross, opportunistic and, yeah. I saw a photograph of of Andrew Tate the other day, who I only learnt who he was really recently because, of course, I did. Mm -hmm. And he was tweeting the pictures of him surrounded by loads of young women and somebody was pointing out that that actually he kind of looks gay. And the more he (laughs) surrounds himself, and that's not an insult, obviously, but the more he surrounds himself with women, the more it looks like he's... He doth protest too much. He doth protest too much. Exactly that. 
exactly that. It's not an insult. I mean, uh, I'm sure gay people would say, well, they wouldn't welcome into their community, even if he was. But yeah, Jesus, he just, a man tries too hard. Yeah, he's a disgrace. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by the queen of British television, the magnificent Sally Wainwright. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for asking me. Happy Valley Series 3. Oh, how long I have waited (laughs) for this. Now, you said, and always said, and I respect you enormously for this statement, I'm not going to write this series until I've got the time and the ideas to write it. Yeah. Which has been seven years? Are we talking about seven years? Yeah, six or seven years. Yeah, I think it's. It, by the time it gets on screen, it'll have been seven years, I think. Does that mean that you've put it out of your head entirely, or have you got a little notebook that over the last seven years <laughs> you've thought, oh, yeah, that's not a bad idea, I'll write that down? A bit of both. I try and, you know, keep a bit of a note of any good ideas that happen. But because I've done Gentleman Jack in the interim, that's taken up so much mental energy. Gentleman Jack is the hardest show I've ever written, just because of the amount of reading the diaries transcribed. Mm. Not just transcribing them because I, you know I don't always transcribe my own stuff. Um, although I did in the beginning, it's it's turning what is essentially not a dramatic narrative into a dramatic narrative. You know, it's a diary. It's 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 actually quite turgid and boring in, <laughs> yeah. in many ways. You know, I personally love it, but you know, it's it's not a narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So it just takes a huge amount of time and effort to. to I think it takes me twice as long to write Gentleman Jack as anything else. So. You know, I've, I have put Happy Valley out of my mind while I've been doing that. I had to. And I think really the gap has served us very well in terms of story. You know, we always, me and Sarah talked about um, doing the three-parter, making sure it had a very definite ending. And I always wanted to um, wait for Ryan to be old enough to be big enough to make his own decisions about things mm. and to have some freedom in the world so that he could he could possibly be going off and seeing his dad without Catherine realising. Mm. It, that that was always the plan. It's not like I've only just done it now because I've only just had time. It was it was a plan. I've watched the first two episodes, and and I think one oh, of the one of the nicest things to see was Ryan is still Ryan. You have not recast. <laughs> I think it would have been rather odd to have recast him. I think on many levels, you know, he's a good, he's a great little actor, and um, it, I think emotionally, I'd have felt differently if we'd cast someone else. I think the audience would. You know, he's got a great vulnerability about him. Yeah. I think if it was someone else, it, you know, it never quite works when we recast. I mean, sometimes you just have to because of circumstances. But I was really quite anxious that we shouldn't uh, go ahead with this um, particular. And there's no need to. You know, he is fantastic. Exactly. Because that's one of the problems the older children get, the more difficult it becomes for them to carry on in that role. OK, I want to talk to you about actors because you work with what I jokingly refer to as the Sally Wainwright Repertory Company. You work mm. with... I think more than anyone I can think of, the same actors. Mm. But not the same actors in the way that you've got like three or four. I'm talking probably two dozen actors that you have on some sort of, you know, circulation. Yeah. Just by way of an example, I noticed that Anthony Flanagan is joining this series of Happy Valley. Oh, yeah. you, you've worked with him before. <laughs> so yeah. do you write stuff with people in mind now? Are you at that stage? Sometimes I do. I mean, I tend to do with bigger roles. I don't think I had done with the part that Anthony plays. It's just he he pops up to audition and it's like, you know, I know him and I know how good he is and I know that he would relish this. I know the kind of thought and effort he puts in. And and he's a very unusual actor. He's got a very, he's got a unique vibe, I think, Anthony. Mm. Yeah, I think it's great. And um, so it was a bit of a no-brainer. And I don't know why I like working with the same people I 
I think it's fairly obvious myself that it's because they're good. Yeah, well, there, there is that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny because back when, because Anthony Flanagan's in The Terror, and back when I watched The Terror, Oh yeah, uh, yeah, Adam Negatis was so amazing oh, in that, and I kept yeah, thinking, yeah. "Where have I seen him before? Where have I seen him before?" And I looked, and it was your stuff. Yeah, again, and Adam again has a really unique thing, unique energy. Yeah, he's a very unusual actor. Adam, he's very talented. Talking of great, that you have got a newcomer coming. He's not turned up yet. I've only watched two, but you've got God's Own Country's Alex Sekaranu joining season three. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, all I want to say there is thank you, Sally. Yeah, just thank you. Because <laughs> he is yeah, amazing. He's lovely. Yeah. But not on screen, but yeah. <laughs> so how does it feel to be back with Catherine? Is it like hanging out with an old friend again? Or is that a kind of romanticised view of it? It kind of is, really. You know, she's such a fabulous character and Sarah plays are just so consistently brilliantly, you know, with that extraordinary blend of you know, deep, profound understanding of the the dark stuff that Catherine's been through and humour, you know, that brilliant combination mm. that, um, you know, that not everybody can do, that not everybody can bring. And she is kind of her forte, you know, she's so, you know, she can break your heart one minute and she can have you, you know, pissing yourself laughing at the next. I've got a friend who reviews mm. TV. When Mayor of Easttown was on the, t- well, on the telly, yeah, he sent me a message and said, what do you make of Mayor of Easttown? And I said, I think it's Happy Valley, but without the humour. <laughs> and he sent me a screenshot back of the review that he'd written of it. And it yeah. literally says those very words. It's like Happy Valley, but without humour. You probably heard that quite a lot, didn't you? I'm thinking. I haven't actually watched Mayor of Easttown. I, I really like Kate Winslet, obviously. And um, Lisa, our police advisor, rang me up and she said, they've ripped off Happy Valley. It's just Happy Valley. They've just copied Happy Valley. And another writer's sort of said, oh, yes, it's... He's been influenced by it, and you think, yeah, you kind of have. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know what? Can you do? It's like everybody says it's like it's like Happy Valley, but not as good. So yeah, I mean, I'll that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would agree with that. Now, I was talking to a friend, a different friend of mine, and I said, "Oh, Happy Valley's back! I'm so excited!" And she said to me, "I don't really watch." cop dramas and I said it's not a cop drama I get why you say that but it's not a cop drama and she said what is it and I thought what is it and I said it's about one really strong woman surrounded by dozens of really weak men (laughs) (laughs) I mean how's that as a as a summary do you think certainly the idea with Happy Valley was that it's a it's a story about it's a it's a story about I think a very um sorted woman to whom something very tragic has happened i hope i i i, I worry a bit about the idea that I, I, all my men are weak i don't think they are i think they just no that no they're not all weak are they but... it's it's kind of her perception of them mm. that they're like you know when she says twats at the end of the opening oh it's so glorious yeah no, they're not twats they're doing the job they, they're the men who are doing the job that's yeah. her perception of them um because of the way they treat her you know the way they uh, sort of take the piss out of her thinking she knows what she's talking about and then she clearly does you know, I don't think you make your heroes and heroines any greater by making the people around them weak or, you know, look weak or stupid. I, I, I hope the people around her are real rather than weak. And she's, yeah. you know, she's real too, but it's she has qualities that make us respond to her in a different way, perhaps. Yeah. To the other. Two episodes in, I forgot how much, how kind of how stressful sometimes it is to watch it how I can see people making terrible decisions and you just want to scream through the telly 
just this is not going to end well stop now (laughs) stop now think about what you're doing this is not going to end well I think part of the reason I really like it is I think a lot of dramas now I mean a lot of them are about about romance about romantic you know love and also a lot of them are about what I suppose now gets termed you know the urban family and Happy Valley is about the family family because the idea that we get a family we choose I think is sometimes a bit of a cop-out because yeah. you know the family we, we get is is the people that it's really hard to have a relationship the relationship for example between Catherine and Claire is always very interesting to me possibly because my dad was an alcoholic so I have the constant feeling of I can never fully trust Claire not to go off the rails because you know no matter how much you love someone and how much care and it's they make their own decisions and sadly you can never keep them you can never stop them doing what they want to do how how do you feel about how's that relationship for you talking to my sister because my sister's been here with me um while we've been sorting out my mum's um stuff and um when we were little my mum's mum lived with my auntie mary who was her sister and they'd both been widowed um uh, my, my auntie mary in 1957 and my granny in 1969 and they came from a very big family, so they were like a lot of big families, very close to each other. Mm. So for you know reasons that I don't know about, because I was only like three or four at the time, they ended up living together, uh, sharing a house together as sisters. I used to spend a lot of time there, around there as a little kid, me and my sister did. And it was just a really great house. It was a great place to go. It had a fabulous atmosphere. Um, they, were always, they were both really funny people. They completely spoiled us. And so in my head, I think that's where I've got this kind of slightly romantic idea of two sisters living together. And obviously it's it's my drama, so it's not romantic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In, in Happy Valley, but I think in my head it must be a, you know, it's, it feels like a, a cosy place to be, which their house is. So I think that's where that came from for me. That kitchen, every scene that's in that kitchen is mm, incredible. Mm either because it's, you know, full of love or because at times it's been full of rage. And I think, you know, we have to accept a lot of houses are like that. There's been a lot of nasty rows in that kitchen. There's been a lot of, you know, lovely moments in that kitchen. It's, we were just talking about romance. On the other hand, Gentleman Jack, love story. Last Tango is more of a romance, really, than than Gentleman Jack. Gentleman Jack was... It was never really a romance between Anne Lister and Anne Walker. It was it, it was about Anne Lister finding, you know, very pragmatically looking out around her who would be a suitable wife in the way that men did yeah. in that period in history, you know, looking for good connections rather than uh, romance. So that's what I think. That's why Gentleman Jack was interesting. It wasn't just, it wasn't just about romance. Yeah, what men tradition did all the time, but it was a woman doing it. That's what made it. I think different and interesting yeah Um, but I think Last Tango was very definitely a A straight up romance yeah yeah can we talk about Gentleman Jack because obviously there's not going to be any more of it well we don't know yet yet. you know there are negotiations going on to try and raise are there a third series it's it's hard it's going to be hard it's it's, I don't want to say it's unlikely to happen but uh, that is sadly the reality but there are efforts in place at the moment to try and raise the money to for us to tell more of the story. I mean, I'd love to be able to tell the rest of Anne Lister's story up to her death. So, um, the, you know, those negotiations are ongoing. Oh, I'm but, glad. I'm glad. But nothing conclusive yet. If nothing else, Sally, because I watched a documentary that the BBC put out called Gentleman Jack Changed My Life. 
which obviously you'll know about, in which a lot of middle-aged women were saying, you know, I watched this and I either realised that I was a, a, a lesbian or I came out as a lesbian finally. And I just, I found actually the whole thing terribly moving, to be honest. It's rare that television has a, a proper sort of socio-political impact like that. You must be really proud. It, well, it's been really extraordinary. I, I had, you know, I don't think any of us had the, any idea of the effect it was going to have and how it would affect so many people so profoundly and change, you know, literally change people's lives. And I mean, there's a whole kind of movement now about, you know, that it's called the Analyst of Birthday Weekend, where at her birthday, they've had one event. It was meant to be in 2020, then it's 2021, and then this year it actually happened because of the pandemic pushing everything off. Um, there was a whole week, I think it ended up being 10 days of celebrations in Halifax, organised by the fans, organised by the fans of the show. And, it's, you know, that's going to be in perpetuity, hopefully. That's incredible. So for a TV show to have that kind of impact, it, you know, it just seems really... And the BBC were really pleased with it. The BBC wanted to go again. It was, you know, it's been really sad that HBO have not felt the same about it because it's, you know, it's, it, you know it, did, it did do really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it did have this huge cultural impact. Uh, which just doesn't happen every day. Um, you know, I've never, I've never really experienced anything like it. It's, you know, when TV can have that much of a, a real effect in the real world, it's, mm. it's unusual. I can't think of another example like that. I mean, I, I, I know the places have become really busy because, you know, certain cities everybody wants to go to because this is what this is set in and everything. But, you know, to actually sort of, like you say, create a point where, where people are, Almost a movement. Yeah, that's in, that's incredible. Going back to Happy Valley, how did it feel bringing that to a close? But it must be a strange feeling, both really satisfying and a bit sad at the same time. Um, I think it's a strength to know when to stop. And oh, it was yeah. something Sarah's been really clear about. I think it's a strength to end a series on a very definite conclusion rather than on a, a sort of um, nebulous cliffhanger, not knowing whether you're going again or not. Yeah. Um, I think it's really, you know, the fact that we made this decision that it would be a trilogy, as we're now calling it, um, <laughs> has been a strength. You know, there's a very definite end to the story this time. Yeah. Have you been surprised by how much excitement there is about this last series? Because, um, like I said, firstly, yeah. I mean, television audiences have quite a short memory. So firstly, it's been a long time since the last one. But on the other hand... People have had seven years to watch two yeah. series. It's kind of surprised me and it hasn't. I think what surprises me more than anything is accepting that it really has been a massive hit. <laughs> you never really know, you know, you kind of, you get, you shield yourself from any crap reviews and you don't believe the good ones. So you tend to not really be t- too aware. I, th- I think you're aware when something's a complete flop. <laughs> um, but... I think what's what's really come home to me is that it really has been a show that's that's made an impact and that people have really talked about in a way that's that that not many shows do get talked about. And of course, it's done very well in America. It's done very well all around the world as well. You know, it's. Um, I, th- I mean, I think we got Gentleman Jack Greenlit because of Happy Valley in America. You know, they, I think the HBO came on board because they knew the quality of Happy Valley. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, and this shouldn't be a thing, but I know it really often is, part of the hurdle to get over with 
for a British television programme is if you're talking in regional accents, you get a huge amount of, I didn't really understand what they were saying. And yeah. you think, oh, come on, <laughs> come on. It's subtitles on. Yeah, it's exactly. You know, I can understand the difference between a New York accent and a Deep South accent. I would imagine they should be able to tell the difference between London and Yorkshire. But I could never tell what they were saying on the wire. Um, I mean, yeah, that is quite... That I tried quite to watch it about three times and I really didn't know what was going on. And I've just, next time I try, I'll remember to put the subtitles on. I watch subtitles all the time now because my hearing is really, really bad. And I've got, <laughs> I've got quite the bee in my bonnet about subtitles because I didn't realise quite how much they don't match up. Because sometimes I can hear what they're saying I and see, read what they're like, saying and they're not the same thing. And no, it makes me... And the it, spelling's not always great either. Yeah. And if you've made the effort to craft a beautiful line and then all that comes up in the subtitles is no. <laughs> like, what the <laughs> hell? Why is anybody bothering? This is, this is terrible. Am I allowed to ask you what's next? Happy Valley has cleared mm. the decks. We'll have no more uh, Last Tango. I'm working on a new project with the HBO. And I'm working on a new project for the BBC, but neither of them have been announced yet, so I probably can't really talk about them. But there is more staff. That's all, that's all I can yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there a difference? I mean, there's got to be a difference, and I'd imagine a lot of the difference is the budget between HBO and BBC. Yeah, I mean, the thing now is with a lot of productions is you do have to get uh, you know another company involved to get the kind of budget that you might want. Mm. The industry's just changed so massively, hasn't it, over the last 10 years? It's um, Everything's so different now. It's... I was talking to my sister when she was down here recently um, saying she has to get her husband to turn the telly on because she doesn't know how. Yeah. Um, which is a bit <laughs> But I kind of knew what she meant. <laughs> Absolutely. I babysat for some friends of mine and when they came back, I was reading and they were like, oh, I thought you'd be watching the telly. And I said, I couldn't turn the telly on. <laughs> it's not my telly. So I didn't know how to turn it on. So I just sat and read a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, good look. Sally's got kittens. He is just magnificent. <laughs> he really so, is. Do you get to watch much telly? I don't watch a lot of telly. I really don't. I find it, the choice overwhelming in mm. terms of the mass of content. But then when you look at what the choice is, there's actually not a lot. It's still all... There's so much stuff on that I... You know, I watch for 10 minutes and very rarely stick with things. Yeah. I don't know if I've just got a terrible concentration span or... If, um, you know, all things start off well and then this, after the first episode, it's like they've stopped bothering. I was curious whether you watched Julia because Sarah was absolutely Oh, God, yeah, I watched Julia, it. yeah. I watched things if somebody I know is in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or if somebody I know has written it or whatever. It was very good. But I think it had, a, like a lot of things, it had a bit of a dip in the middle where you think you've actually got there were more episodes than they had ideas for. And there's going to be a second one, isn't there? I don't know where that's going. Yeah, but... yeah. Uh, she's just come back, so she's just finished filming. I, th- I suppose what I found amazing about it was you know it's about a middle-aged woman who decides to change her life yeah and for the one of the few things they actually acknowledged the fact that you know she was like had terrible hot flushes and all of that stuff that <laughs> so rarely gets acknowledged in in anything about about women of a you know of my age that was like yeah. yes actually that's one of the things I'm writing about next is, oh really um, the menopause working tightly with hot flush oh amazing I knew, I knew I thought you were the best TV writer for a reason, Sally. I knew it. It hasn't really been announced yet, so I can't really tell you too much about it. Sally, this has been absolutely brilliant. It's always lovely to talk to you. For your cat exchange programme that we've had. <laughs> Hello, 
I am joined on the Zoom by Kate Norris and Sinead Parker, a.k.a. Norris and Parker, comedy duo, witches, sirens, women. Kate, hello. Hello. And Sinead, hello. Hello. I'm going to dive right in there. Debauched is a word that comes up a lot in relation to your comedy. It's the first week of January. How debauched are you feeling right now? Well, we just did a rehearsal and as we were doing a really up, close rehearsal Katie farted um, really badly um so <laughs> I guess we're quite gassy in terms of debauchery um, so, yeah, we've, yeah we've been sort of writing um every day this week and then sort of finishing off the evening with a cold glass of wine or a bottle of wine probably actually mm-hmm. how we like on wine so I think that's me justifying the fart um, <laughs> I mean thank you for your honesty on changing it from glass to bottle I appreciate that <laughs> I am still like 80% cheese I don't know what's going on in my intestines it's all quite unpleasant yeah we had macaroni cheese and chicken Kiev last night for dinner which was really nice with peas because I always I'm the I'm the sort of one that tries to get Sinead to eat vegetables yeah it's a <laughs> sort of life condition that she's failing at she left three peas peas are like the sweets of the vegetable world they're basically just little oh. sugar parcels aren't they and even that's too healthy for me. We, yeah. we had sweet corn as well, which apparently give you no nutrition. Really? Apparently they're pointless. You, you're, you don't even buy, you don't even degrade them in your system. That's why I can see them in your poo, because they just go straight yeah. through you. That's why I had to stop eating, I was saying, sun-dried tomatoes, because I ate so many that they started to come out whole in my Wowzers. poo. Yeah, so Wowzers. now I'm having a break in sun-dried tomatoes. This is yeah. exactly the way I thought this interview would start. I'm very excited. So <laughs> 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 that's what you like, debauchery. Yes, although, yeah. yeah. There's no, there is poo in the show actually as a theme, yeah. but not as a physical kind of. Um, Gillian McKeith features, you know, the, the um, dietitian mm-hmm. and, and stool expert. She is a character in the show. Yeah, she's quite an important part. Stool is standard. That's good. A friend said to me over the holidays, she came and met some of my other friends. And as we left, she said, I'm so pleased it's not just me that you talk about poo with. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I love poo with that. <laughs> For the listeners, can you tell us the Norris and Parker origin story, please? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we, we met in Manchester uh, in 2009. At drama school, Manchester yeah. School of Theatre. I'm a Mancunian, so I was already there. Yeah, I'm from the West Country, so I travel far. <laughs> yeah, we weren't sure of each other at first, because I was quite introverted and shy at that point, mm-hmm. and Katie was a bob shy. Yeah, i just come back from travelling around, so I was had a sort of tan which I topped up with fake tan a lot of um, Jane Norman dresses yeah <laughs> we had the same birthday we discovered so we're 26 of February Pisces and so we had to share a birthday and we went to the comedy store didn't we we did <laughs> stand up comedy yeah and then it got to second year we were in like we were supernumeraries in a play at the Bolton Octagon with Michelle Collins uh about okay. Fred Dibner what was he a steeplejack Fred Dibner the sort of northern legend uh yeah um he was a famous engineer wasn't he Fred Dibner we played like Butch PA and camera woman we were messing around and we were giving one of the actors a lift home and he was just like why don't you do some sketch comedy so we did yeah we booked like a little room above a pub and then wrote our first show and, and then, uh, all our friends and family came and one member from the actual public and then, yeah. <laughs> That's how it always starts out. <laughs> yeah. who, who still comes to our shows. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then we've been, yeah, been doing it ever since. Yeah, we've done five Edinburgh's now. Yeah. Yeah. And, we've, and yeah, and we're just like at that point of like sort of friends, sisters, I hate each other, love each other, poo in front of each other, get in the bath together, mm-hmm. kind of no boundaries. And that's where, yeah, a lot of the comedy comes from. Well, it's it's always a delight to talk to fellow Pisceans. So uh, thank you for oh, that. Yeah. I knew it. Do you know what I sent that as well? <laughs> <laughs> um, when's your birthday? March 17th, St. Patrick's oh. Day. 
Yeah. Oh, even there. Yeah. Mickey Noonan as well. I'm basically an Irish dream. Oh, I'm half Irish. Well, my mammy's Irish. Yeah. <laughs> and Manchester, the Manchester Noonans, there's all sort of connections going on. Oh, yeah, the Noonan, the, um, the gangland gang- criminals. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that documentary, the Noonans. <laughs> <laughs> Not related as far as I know. That's a shame. Maybe do some you should more maybe lie about that. that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that would give you the edge. That's pretty cool, yeah. Oh, what are you saying? How dare you? I've already got edge. Yeah, you're pretty edgy. I knew that. Take it back, yeah. (laughs) So your latest show is Sirens, which got cracking reviews. Uh, uh, Sadly cut short, Edinburgh Fringe Run because of COVID, right? One of you got COVID. We did 11 shows at Monkey Barrel, and yeah, it was was great. It was really awesome. But yeah, we we, we sadly had to uh, pull the run early. It was awful. Yeah, I got COVID, and then I had to isolate in a... We were in a flat, and my room was like almost like two floors below street level. So I had to isolate for a week in essentially like a basement box with hardly any light. Like the window was really small. So it was like a little, yeah, like just a little bit of light. And then obviously I like couldn't come out and I was sharing with a load of <laughs> really like um, anxious men that basically told me to stay in the room <laughs> the whole time. And then Kate had to bring me like ready meals and leave them outside the door as I just wept in my bed it, it was, was pretty it was pretty it was awful dark. it was yeah. grim yeah it sounds like you made covid very victorian yeah i was kind of yeah like melodramatically like sweating um, <laughs> in like a long billowing white night <laughs> um, apart from yeah. there was one a time when she um ordered an uber eats and um it didn't arrive oh that was awful and i had to tell her i had to go and knock on the door and say i'm really sorry it's not outside and then i could hear her on the other side going <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, I really feel for you. That's terrible. Um, it was, it was yeah. actually it's awful. Because I saw it on the app. I'd been waiting all day to, like, I just hadn't the strength to eat. And I'd ordered this big, I think, Chinese takeaway. And I could see it on the app saying, um, arriving, arriving. And then Katie went out in the street and then it said arrived. So it obviously been delivered somewhere else. And Kate was like, I can't see this Uber Eats person anywhere. And then the realisation that someone had taken my Chinese. It was devastating. It wasn't the yeah. best Edinburgh experience. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, which was obviously disappointing, yeah, because um, we've always loved Edinburgh and obviously we've waited a few years because of COVID to do it. So, I mean, it was a, yeah, it was hard, but so we are really excited to do Soho. Exactly. You're back this week at the Soho Theatre with Sirens. Tell us about the show. Yeah, so it's a nautical themed sketch show mm-hmm. and we've got a three uh, two parts two parts now isn't it melodrama called mm-hmm. the lighthouse which is kind of inspired by like hitchcock melodrama the film the lighthouse mm-hmm. which in the show is is something that i have written like okay. because we play, we play ourselves we play like a version of norris and parker that's really heightened and then there's always kind of an underlying tension and aggression between us mm-hmm. <laughs> which kind of comes out towards the end i would say of yeah. the show. um and sort of because katie's character she's written this play the lighthouse that's her thing and then I've in real life I've trained as a drama therapist so in the show I'm kind of trying to like therapize Katie the whole way through and do drama therapy with her and she doesn't want that because he does <laughs> um, and yeah so there's this sort of like our storyline our tension then this lighthouse and then other sketches and characters that we always sort of have in the show so yeah there's a lot going on basically there's something yeah. for everyone song dance techno incredible scenes <laughs> you got me at techno I've got to add the publicity photos for Sirens are fucking glorious. They're so good. Oh, thank um, you. Rebecca Need Manier is the photographer's name. Amazing. She's fantastic. Yeah, she has a lot of comedians now. Um, yeah, we've got we bought a giant paddling pool and 
got in it in her back garden it was absolutely freezing wasn't it yeah (laughs) covered ourselves in like moss and flowers and leaves for this like Ophelia style photo shoot and then we also had this kind of 1940s sirens pictures taken where we all had like full hair and makeup yeah we always like to kind of go quite far with our photos yeah which is representative of what happens on stage as well brilliant Yeah. yeah And to that end, this isn't a question I would usually ask, but you you do seem a likely yes. Have you ever lured a man to a watery grave? (laughs) Many, many times. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I drowned a man. Um, (laughs) We have killed together. I'm not even surprised. I'm not surprised. No, but I have lured a man into the sea. I feel like I've had, like when I've been to Thailand, um, I've ended up in the sea with like, various men, like, but not, 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 not killed them. We'll be luring a man potentially yeah. next week. A man a night gets drowned at Soho just because we're really into audience participation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Vicious yeah. and alluring women are clearly your thing. What is the appeal? She asks, already knowing the appeal, but wanting to hear it from you too. Yeah, we've always, always loved playing. Yeah, vicious and aggressive women. It's our whole thing. Yeah, it's vicious it's and aggressive women. The fear of sort of female sexuality we find quite funny to play with, I think. Yeah. Mm. And it's something that people sort of always walk away from our shows sort of saying there's like a horniness and aggression yes and just yeah always wanted to to kind of show women in that way that women like yeah I think it's less so now I think there's kind of just people are over the kind of women aren't funny thing but when we started definitely there was something I felt I feel like audience used to used to be slightly I don't know just the the idea of women just being like gross on stage Mm. and not make a big deal of it women can be disgusting depraved sad pathetic and all that's funny and it doesn't yeah but I feel like that's kind of become more the norm now but Mm -hmm. we've always been drawn to like sometimes like grotesque or bigger characters or just yeah aggressive I think we're just getting a lot out on the stage aren't we yeah (laughs) what did I say to you last a few days ago I was like I just want to like I'm really angry at the moment I just want to be really angry next week is that okay (laughs) (laughs) and and Sinead you're the you're the drama therapist right yeah yeah what is that is that okay is that okay what she's doing is that how it should be done well actually I genuinely think like comedy for me has always been I'm like I do think it's quite therapeutic in the way that you can explore the dark the shadow side shame embarrassment all the stuff that you yeah you can get out and then when other people laugh or they're like oh I do that too there's something in that shared catharsis so I think smash it up next week yeah yeah <laughs> This is all in your back catalogue as well. Your show previous to this was 2018's Burn the Witch. So I would like to know, who is your favourite witch from history or fiction? Take your pick. Oh, who is our favourite witch? Angelica Houston in The Witches. Mm -hmm. So it's annoyingly, I've got tarot cards somewhere in this house that are just witches on them. Anne Boleyn. (laughs) (laughs) Anne Boleyn is my favourite witch. Um, Who's your favourite witch? I'm re-watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer because I wish it was still the 90s, clearly. And yeah, Willow is excellent. She's a great witch. Yeah. I also used to watch Charmed growing up. I loved um, the sisters in Charmed. 
the Hocus Pocus, which is the obvious ones, but I feel like that's too obvious. And there's also, there's a really good book called, is it called Lottie Willows? And it's about... Oh, um, that is an amazing book. It's an amazing book, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I love that book. That's a great, yeah, she's a great, she's a great literary witch. She just wants to be a spinster. Yeah. And also we absolutely, we love the film The Witch. The, um, Robert Eggers film. Yeah, with Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, is that her name? Yeah, playing yeah. the um, the the girl that kind of becomes a witch at the end. Yeah, love that film. Oh, also Baba Yaga, you know, with her chicken foot house that can just move oh, around. Yeah, actually, that was interestingly like it, on my drama therapy course. We all had to pick a myth, and I worked with that myth oh. like loads. That's yeah, she's a that's a great one too. Yeah, in that show, Burn the Witch, we also killed someone, didn't we? Killed an audience member. We killed the wife. Yeah, I just sort of assumed that had happened. Sorry, was I supposed to have a specific question about it? <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a theme here, isn't there? <laughs> Staying on the murder theme, you are in the process of filming a web series called Murder for Dummies. Are you allowed to tell us anything yeah. about it? Um, I just want to say, I actually, I don't know if we are allowed to talk about it. or We haven't started it yet. We haven't started filming it. I think they started filming it, but we're... We're, yeah. we're, we're, play, we're playing like a double act in it. Um, and we've got a film, a few filming dates in uh, February and March. And that's with James Hamilton's co-written it, hasn't he? With yeah. his sketch group. Mm. We don't have like huge amounts of information on it. So maybe. Maybe not. It sounds like just from the title and the brief synopsis that I got given that it would be something that you guys would write. And obviously you haven't. It's James Hamilton who's written it. And it reminded mm. me that you both come from that straight acting background, which you've mentioned. Mm. Which do you prefer? Do you still love the acting rather than the comedy? We found a way to combine both, I think. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, sometimes the question like we get asked is, do you prefer sort of serious acting or doing comedy? But I feel like we always love doing both. But I, I think our shows, we have found a way to combine the two. Like we do have a lot of moments mm. in our show which are genuinely like quite sort of we play them so seriously that they feel real and that's why it's funny yeah but I I love I do love the kind of being able to write my own stuff and perform it I think I do really like I mean it's yeah when when you get to act something that's only one thing you have to do whereas when you're creating comedy we're like and what lighting do we want and kind of you know what props and costumes and kind of doing all that side of things as well Mm -hmm. but I love the freedom of being able to sort of write what you know what we think is funny and then put it on the stage and it's exactly kind of how we want it to be yeah, like yeah. complete autonomy, really, to have do whatever you want on stage and off stage. Within risk assessments. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were just rehearsing just now a new bit. We're gonna, we've devised this whole sort of new section for next week. And um, it's not obviously funny, I would say, in a way that I think is really interesting dramatically. Something we've not really done before. So do you like to continually challenge yourselves? And how do you know when that challenge to yourself is going to really work with an audience? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely... We never like, know. There's things that we were like, this is hilarious, and this is going to bring the house down, and then you do it, and then you're like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and stuff that you kind of have to let go and be like, okay, it's not working, you have to let it go, even if we love it. So yeah, it we've, is we've always... cut, made some cuts since Edinburgh for, for Soho. Yeah, I had a really go. boring song in the show called Vegan Boy, about my <laughs> vegan boyfriends, and it got to the point where we were like... <laughs> just like not that good and so we're like okay vegan boy can go yeah. you can sing it to your boyfriend in private I, I do which he really enjoys yeah <laughs> you clearly make each other laugh so knowing when that is just like oh we're pals who make each other laugh to oh this could be a thing are all your conversation tinged with is this a bit yeah but without sort of being really aware I think of it obviously when we're writing together there is a lot of laughter like even yesterday we were improvising some characters and then we found lines and, and put them in but yeah, we're always talking to each other in accents, being playful. 
Sinead uh, can only pick up the phone and go, hi, Heidi, how are you? And I'm like, hi, bitch. Um, which would annoy anyone else, I think. Yeah. Uh, We're really tired and we sit in total silence and watch like a Jill Halfpenny Channel 5 drama, drama. or a, yeah, a harrowing documentary. We watched um, the Sheridan Smith drama, The Teacher, after writing the other night. But yes, yeah, so we can sit in silence for long periods of time. But then if we're not doing that, we're talking in accents or farting. Or yeah. farting, yeah. Which is kind of just an accent from another part of your body, really. Exactly. Um, Sirens is at Soho Theatre from Wednesday the 11th to Saturday the 14th of January. And tickets are available from SohoTheatre.com. Any other pies you two have got your dastardly fingers in that you would like to tell me about? I'm going to Rome to a monastery the day after Soho. Okay, um, is this to like atone for all of the murders? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's to have some peace and some quiet time. And then um, doing stand up. All yeah. fuck shit up at the monastery. Um, <laughs> You've got to work. Oh, yes, I'm doing stand up as well. I've got a work in progress at the Bill Murray the week after Soho, which I will write in the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm working on stand up show as well. Amazing. Does it have a, a working title yet? Work in progress. It's a good, strong working title. I like it. <laughs> Yeah. So where can people follow you on social media to find out what you are up to, where you're up to it, all of that stuff? So we are on Twitter as Norris Parker 26 or on Instagram as Norris Parker 26. Yeah. On Facebook, I'm Katie Norris 26. The, the repetition of the 26 is because our birthdays are 26 of Feb. And Sinead's on Instagram too as Sinead Parker 26. 26. Yeah. <laughs> delightful chaos talking to you two i've thoroughly enjoyed myself thank you so much for chatting with me thank Thank you so much for having us you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where the crowd goes wild as we discuss all things women's sport. I'm recording this in a rather rainy Harwich this morning, so uh, if you can hear the ambient noise of rain on the roof, well, I'm not going for a run today, let's put it like that. Since it's our first Jenny Off The Blocks of the new year, I thought we'd have a look forward to a few big events coming up in Q1, as they say. But let's start with a tip of the hat to some excellent sporting women who were honoured at the end of 2022, including Beth Mead, who I rightly predicted would be crowned the BBC's Sports Personality of the Year, alongside her Team of the Year, the Lionesses, and Coach of the Year, Serena Wiegmann, in a ceremony that made me weep buckets. It's so well deserved by all of them. But it didn't stop there. Captain and Newport Pagnell's second, obviously, finest Leah Williamson was awarded an OBE. Our teammates Mead, Lucy Bronze and Ellen White were all awarded MBEs. And Wiegmann was made a CBE on the overseas list. Wales captain Sophie Ingle and Scotland's Jen Beattie and Kim Little were also recognised. There were too many women in sport recognised to list here, but a quick shout out to Denise Lewis, who was made a dame for her contribution to last year's Commonwealth Games and getting it up and running and also to Joe Tung who's a bit of a legend and the director of Women in Football for services to football and gender equality. Congratulations to all of them. Onwards what have we got coming up? Well starting next week the Australian Open which I'll talk about in more detail next week but I'm very excited for. There'll be some obvious absences this year. Ash Barty who retired after winning last year's Australian Open. Serena Williams who also retired and Naomi Osaka, who's withdrawn from the tournament without giving any explanation. In terms of the Brits, we don't know yet if Emma Raducanu will play. She was forced to retire from the ASB Classic in Auckland last week after rolling her ankle 
and unfortunately Heather Watson failed to make it through qualifying. However, three Brits have made it through the first round of qualifying, Katie Bolter, Lily Miyazaki and Jodie Burridge. The second round matches take place today if you're listening on Wednesday. So unless you are listening at like 3am, you may well know the outcome of those matches by now. And if you don't, look them up. On February the 4th, the men's and women's Six Nations kick off. On the women's side, the opening weekend will see title holders England take on Scotland. The women's game is going from strength to strength in rugby. But I think if you were going to be critical here, maybe you'd say that this competition is not wildly competitive. England have won the last four championships, as well as the Grand Slam and the Triple Crown. But I do think as more countries invest further, this is likely to become more competitive. And there is a Big match at the close of the championship as England take on France at Twickenham. That is likely to be one of the more competitive matches, I would say. And you can go and see it, so grab your tickets now. And in just under a month, the Women's 2020 World Cup gets underway in South Africa. It will be the eighth edition of the tournament and England are looking for their first title since 2009. As ever, reigning champions Australia will be the ones to beat. There are 10 countries competing and the event runs from the 10th to the 26th of February. If you think cricket is long and boring, 2020 is kind of like the scrappy-do to its slower, more cumbersome, older cousin test cricket. I have to say, if, like me, your attention span isn't great, I would definitely recommend it. I'm recording this on Tuesday and there is a big match on tonight. Not on TV, just on, you know, happening. I'm not going to bore you with the details ordinarily. I wouldn't give a fuck about the Carabao Cup. Really, I wouldn't. But it's the quarterfinals and Charlton Athletic are in them. We're playing Manchester United at Old Trafford. So yeah, thanks, Fates. We appreciate you. And so by the time you listen to this, you'll know whether or not David smashed Goliath or, you know, it was a sad journey back along the M1 for the addicts. I'm not a gambling woman, but you know. But some good news in the men's game, finally, which happened after an incident last week at a match between footballing powerhouses Scarborough Athletic and Darlington FC. During that match, and this isn't the good news, by the way, play was halted twice on one of those occasions for 38 minutes after assistant referee Emily Carney, a woman of, became the subject of abuse by fans. For anyone who's not aware, a football match is supposed to be 90 minutes long, two halves of 45 minutes, plus a 15-minute half-time break. The match, which started at 1pm, finished at 3.40pm because of all the stoppages. The good news is that Darlington came out strong on this one, stating that they condemn any kind of discriminatory behaviour at matches and added that they were carrying out an investigation into the disgraceful abuse that was aimed at the assistant referee at Scarborough and if individuals are found to have abused the assistant, those individuals will be banned from watching Darlington FC matches and may be subject to further action. Yes, Darlington, quite right too. No messing around, just simply we're not having it. And I've also learned from this foray into the sixth tier of English football, where Charlton Athletic could well find themselves in just a few short seasons, that Darlington are known as the Quakers. Lovely stuff. A reminder that if you ever overhear something like this abuse at a football match, you can report it to kick it out. And I recommend that you do. There's no place for it in modern society. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated! <laughs> Mickey! What were we watching this week? In in the red corner, Mickey. <laughs> yeah, it was it's very much like when I learned how to wrestle.
I'm sorry. Off you go. I appreciated the effort, Hannah. Oh, no, I enjoyed it. I was so enjoyed it so much that I'd forgotten I had to talk. <laughs> this week, we watched Barry Levinson's 1988 war comedy, Good Morning Vietnam. I'm not doing it again. No. Written by Mitch Markovitz, starring the late, great Robin Williams and loosely based on the true story of Armed Forces Radio Service DJ Adrian Croner. A tour de force performance by Robin Williams as Motormouth Croner, in which amazingly he ad-libbed pretty much every broadcast, led to Williams' first Oscar nomination. He lost out to Michael Douglas for Wall Street, and the BAFTA he was nominated for went to John Cleese for A Fish Called Wanda, but Williams did bag a Golden Globe and a whole load of plaudits from the critics. And fair dues. Despite a stellar supporting cast, Forrest Whitaker, Bruno Kirby, this is Williams' film. He is a huge reason that Good Morning Vietnam, nah, still not doing it again, did very well indeed, both critically and commercially, becoming the fourth highest grossing film of 1987, which is when it came out in America, on December the 23rd, before being released to the rest of the world on January the 15th. I think to become like the fourth highest grossing film of the year when you come out on December the 23rd is pretty impressive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Given that most people don't go to the cinema for at least one of those days. Yeah. Yeah. Croner had originally pitched a sitcom based on his experiences as an AFRS DJ to studios back in 1979, but no cigar. The networks didn't see war as comedy material, despite the huge success of MASH. Although, and this is just my take, I'd wager a period piece set in the Korean War was seen as a much easier proposition than a comedy about Vietnam, a war that still defies explanation today and was very, very recent history in 1979. As it happens, coming eight years later, Good Morning Vietnam is Hollywood's first Vietnam comedy. I can't actually think of any others. Hannah, you've watched a lot of films about Vietnam. Can you? No, I can't think of another one. I mean, this is literally peak Vietnam filmmaking time, like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket and Hamburger Hill all came out like in 86 or early 87. So yeah, but obviously none of Mm. them were comedies. Yeah. Comedy aside, it does have interesting stuff to say on censorship and the white saviour narrative. But, and we will get to this, I am certain, there is a whole barrel load of shit that wouldn't and absolutely shouldn't fly these days. Good morning, Vietnam. Also, good morning, racism, homophobia, sexism and stalking. Good morning, homophobia! It's 1965 and airman and DJ Adrian Cronauer is sent to Saigon to bring a little light relief and boosted morale into the lives of the US soldiers fighting in the Vietnam. Well, it's not officially being classed as a war at this point. The GIs love him, but naturally he clashes with the top brass who find his comic delivery too unorthodox for such a serious environment. As he spends time outside of his DJ booth, Cronauer also experiences the realities of war firsthand in his interaction with the Vietnamese and slowly learns the truths that don't wind up on the broadcast. More precisely, aren't allowed to end up on the broadcast. Alongside this, Cronauer also pursues a relationship with a Vietnamese girl named Trinh, and by pursues, I mean chases her down the street, even though she said no. Gets a job teaching her English class, even though she said no. And befriends her brother, Tuan, who eventually organises a date with his sister for his new US pal. Sorry, I can't not come out of the plot summary here. It's a lot, mate. Too much. No is a complete sentence. I will say that by the 85th time Trin says no, he accepts it. But man, a hell of a lot has had to happen for us to get to that point. 
including the bombing of Cronauer's favourite GI hangout, Jimmy Wars, where Cronauer was hanging out just moments before the explosion, which kills two soldiers. Thank goodness for Twan, who pulled Cronauer out of there just in time with the excuse Trin wants to see him. Lucky timing, hey? Cronauer is shaken and then furious when he's not allowed to report what's happened on his radio show. He does it anyway and gets suspended for his troubles. Top Brass Sergeant Major Philip Dickerson, who's had a hard-on for getting rid of Cronauer since he arrived, is fucking delighted. The GIs are not, and the AFRS is inundated with letters and phone calls demanding his reinstatement. Even Topper Top Brass, General Taylor, is a big Cronauer fan and gives him his job back, but a stroppy Cronauer isn't interested until his pal Garlic, that's Forrest Whitaker, finds a canny way to show him just how much his show means to the troops. Dickerson is fucking furious and soon seizes an opportunity to potentially permanently rid himself of Cronauer by okaying his request to interview soldiers in the field and routing him through the Viet Cong-controlled highway. The jeep duly hits a mine, but Twan learns of the trip after Cronauer fails to show up for English class and steals a van to rescue his friend. Lucky you heard that, hey? Because, yeah, yeah, it turns out that actually Twan is a VC operative and the one responsible for the bombing of Jimmy Wars. It's a blow to Cronauer, to say the least, who is honourably discharged and sent home. So, have either of you seen it before? Nope. Yes, I had. Yeah, at the time. I don't think I'd seen it since then, but at the time I, I had seen it. So how old would you have been when you first saw it then, Hannah? I know, 13? Yeah, something like that. I saw it really young as well. And it's not, it's not a kid's film. No, but that said, all of those other films that I listed, I also saw around this time. Mm. My, my dad loved a war film, so yeah, I'd seen Platoon and those well, things. I would say, as war films go, it's quite, it's on the gentle side, don't you think? Mm. With the violence, perhaps, but not necessarily with the content of what he puts out on the radio show. Oh God, I mean, to be honest, I tuned out a lot of that because it's Robin Williams being Robin Williams and I can't bear it, but... Like, oh, do you, are you not uh, a Robin Williams fan? I can't. No, we had this conversation oh, with Aladdin. I can't we? do it. It's um, it's too much for me. It's it's on the kind of Jim Carrey kind of like, oh, you're just like, no, just pipe down. Yeah. So I, <laughs> to be honest, a lot of the content of the radio shows just went past me. But yeah, in terms of Jenny, you are top brass. In top brass. In terms of like violence and stuff like that. And also, like, sex, I would say, as well. Like, it's quite gentle. Mild. Yeah, I yeah. guess so. Mm. I think I saw it young because I loved Robin Williams, having been a huge fan of Mork and Mindy and stuff. And so mm. my mum was like, oh, Robin Williams is in this film. Watching it again now, it feels like I watched that a lot when I was too young, I think. Jen, no offence, but I'm going to go to our Vietnam War correspondent, of course, <laughs> Hannah Dunleavy, and ask, what did you think about historical accuracy? I mean, it's difficult to know because actually, as such, there wasn't that much war in it, was it? It mm. was the sort of the, the sort of the backstage area, isn't it? Really, what they're doing. So, and in truth, I don't think it would be particularly fair to judge it anyway because what they knew in 1987 about the Vietnam War wasn't necessarily that accurate mm. in itself either. Uh, it, it's taken a while for information to come out about what was actually going on in Vietnam. It's taken another like. 20 years and we're further on and you sort of you understand it more but yeah there was stuff I didn't know about it until I watched like you know that Ken Burns documentary that was the there was stuff I didn't know so 
war is shit, I suppose, is its thesis. Or is it? I don't even know. It just sort of happens, doesn't it? I was just, I couldn't, I, I mean, I might as well say this now. I, like Jen, find Robin Williams too much in certain situations and there was too much of him. I would just, just much rather watch him do stand-up, I think. Or serious acting. Mm. It's this thing that's a mix between the two that I find a little bit hard. I found it really difficult to watch the rest of the film without just keep thinking, oh my God, this is so homophobic. This is so homophobic. It was really startling how homophobic it was, I thought. Before we go on to William's performance, I'd say with regards to the war, I think it captures the confusion. Like quite a few of them don't seem to really know why they're there or who they're fighting Mm. or why they're fighting. Yeah. And I thought Twan's speech at the end, where he's like, you think you're the good guys, but to us you're not the good guys, was really good. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I thought the other bit that was good, the bit that I found probably the most powerful, was the bit where he's sort of, he's doing like the almost like the face-to-face radio show with the troops, like when they're all in the vans. Mm. And you can Mm. see... You know, they're all they're all having a bit of a jolly or whatever, and you can see that he's thinking not all of these people are gonna survive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. On that note, William's performance, and I am different to both of you as we've established because I, I really like him. I like that manic energy. And I love his stand up, Hannah, like I know you do. And I actually mm. think a lot of it this is like watching his stand up, but he brings comedy to the drama and drama to the comedy. And I think what he does really well is capture Cronauer's growth as a human, like he is hit repeatedly by a reality, which means he can't hide behind his humour, the voices, the manic energy, the quip Tourette's. He has to take his ego out of it. And I think that's the kind of journey throughout the film is him learning that he can't just hide behind his character anymore. He has to be him. I think he's horrible. Not Robin Williams. I think Cronauer's just like, I find him... You discussed it earlier as a man who will not take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, it's that grand gesture stuff you always talk about. That you're just like, for fuck's sake. I mean, he just basically takes over and, and it, it takes over and fucks up an English class because yeah. because it, and you're like, so no one else matters. You know, the reason any of these people want to learn English doesn't matter. It's that you want to talk to that girl. That is what matters. Yeah. Yeah. So I find him quite annoying as a character. I don't really like him. No, I agree with you. But that's why I think he changes. I think there's a change by the end, whether mm. it's enough. I don't know. A little fun fact, because obviously Cronauer, the character, is not Cronauer, the guy who this is based on. So what did he make of his on-screen character? Mm. Well, he said, quote, Williams was playing a character named Adrian Cronauer, who shared a lot of my experiences. But actually, he was playing Robin Williams. Anybody who has been in the military will tell you that if I did half the things in that movie, I'd still be in Leavenworth. And that is disciplinary barracks for anyone who's not in the US military right now. (laughs) A lot of Hollywood imagination went into the movie. I was a disc jockey in Vietnam and I did teach English in my spare time. I was not thrown out of Vietnam. I stayed for my full one year tour and then was honorably discharged. He did, however, witness the bombing of a restaurant he had only recently left and did clash with army censors when prevented from reporting it. But yeah, I can imagine him watching it and going, fucking hell, I don't come across very well in this, do I? Yeah, quite. I actually think the funniest thing in this is Bruno Kirby's terrible comedy. Mm. I think (laughs) that that bit that he does, oh, Frenchie, and that he manages to get through that shit comedy with a straight face. Mm. 
is is actually a huge achievement because that really makes me laugh. Not the fu- not the thing that he's saying because the thing that he's saying is obviously shit. <laughs> yeah. But when he finishes it and he's like nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> that really self-satisfied face. That really makes me laugh more than the sort of hyperactive stuff. The terrible comedy in this is actually really funny. I really enjoy his defense of pokers as well. <laughs> Just think, yeah. he's a great character. And Bruno mm. Kirby, a little fun fact on the Bruno Kirby front, has said this was his very favorite film to work on. But when he gets asked, he usually says Godfather Part 2 because it's what the fans want to hear. I'd like to focus on one more, what I think is a good point before we get to its clear flaws. I I might make Hannah do it again. Go on. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) I think it kind of captures the complicated politics of complicated politics really well. And and by that, I mean censorship and propaganda. You know, rolling 24-hour news today means things are very different to how they were in 1987. But watching that made me, I mean, and maybe this is just me being a bit naive or at the time being a bit naive, but I just thought, yeah, we'd be fucking fools to think everything's given sunlight now. I don't know how much will have actually changed if you're in the field. So I wondered what you thought about that. And also how much do you think, I mean, we have no sway, no policy sway, but how much do you think people in the field should know about what they're fighting and why they're fighting? No, I mean, I think they should know everything about what they're fighting and why they're fighting, but I can understand why there are bits and bobs that maybe you would elect to hold back until a later point in time. I can understand why that happens, but I think they should absolutely know why and what they're fighting Mm. for, 100%. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't even think that the high-ups necessarily knew what they were Mm. fighting for. I don't even think, like, McNamara, like, knew what he was fighting for, and he was, you know, right at the fucking top of the chain i'm not even sure the presidents were entirely sure Mm. what they were fighting for because this war went on for so fucking long and it just got handed from one one administration to the next administration to the next administration so in terms of ideology i don't think anybody had any particular clear idea what was going on for most of vietnam because most of what they were fighting for was for because america didn't want to be embarrassed on an international Mm. scale because it had sort of got involved and didn't want to be yeah and and wanted to stay committed but I also appreciate that there are probably things that you don't know what's going on you're doing this thing whatever it is you've got to take this hill because actually a lot of that was really a lot of what they were fighting for was fucking pointless to be honest they take a hill and then they just leave it and then go on and take another hill. They, the, the point of the hill was just to get rid of the people on it. And then they'd leave and then it'd be reoccupied again. So it was fucking chaos. But, you know, maybe you're doing something. And if, 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 you, if that information accidentally gets out, then some other people are at risk. You know, your operation is linked to somebody else's operation. So I do understand there are points at which not everybody can know everything. Because, you know, if you're taken by the Viet Cong and you haven't got any information, you can't tell them anything. Yeah, I think it is quite sort of complicated in that sense. But what do I know? When I had chosen this and I did actually watch it before Christmas and I said to Hannah, one of my things to do over the Christmas break was to read up on the Vietnam War because even though I have watched... What a Christmas you were having. (laughs) The the brilliant Ken Burns documentary. When I was watching this, I was like, I can't remember why America are there. Why were America there? And so I started to read it and I was like, oh, this isn't helping me make sense of anything whatsoever. And as I explained this to Hannah, she said, yeah, you may as well have Googled, what is man? And I was like, yeah, there is a sort of futility in trying to understand a lot of aspects of war i guess mm. and I, again i think i think it kind of captures that okay 
floors. <laughs> oh God! Good yeah, if you <laughs> morning homophobia, sexism, racism. Yeah, if you took out the homophobia, sexism, racism, ethnic-based comedy, and stalking, it, it would be a much shorter film. Like what, fifteen minutes? Fifteen Oof. minutes. Yeah, I reckon. Oh, it's problematic, isn't it? Mm. Through modern eyes. I mean, it is racist and it is sexist. But the thing that really screamed out to me was how just wildly homophobic it is. And although you could argue that homophobia, you know, would would have been in the 60s, you know, when it's set, it would have been way, way... And the in world the army, was way more, I guess. And also in the 80s, probably. Way more homophobic and, and in the 80s. But given, given that so much of this is ad-libbed, and so much of this is kind mm. of how Robin Williams is. I feel he does bear some of the responsibility for the amount of homophobia in it. Mm. Some of it is obviously in the script. But his just go to a funny gay voice, go to a silly gay mm. voice is just his go-to. But that's not the thing. It's Jimmy Wall. The way that Jimmy Wall gets talked about in this is actually, I think, in parts obscene. Mm. Like, he, he calls him sick at one point. And then when he takes the young man in there, he says, oh, keep your eye off him. And I'm like, oh, so he's gay, so now he's a paedophile, is he? Brilliant. That's an excellent message to put out in a film. Because I think sometimes in films and in TV series, when they're reflecting how people were at the time, you've got to expect a little bit of that. It's not necessarily something that should come with a content warning or a trigger warning. This is how people were. And that doesn't make the series or the film itself racist, sexist, homophobic. But I think this is. I agree yeah. with you. I think it is. I think it's overstepped that and it isn't about, oh, that, well, this person's a horrible person. So, of course, they've got these traits or this is some of the traits that make them horrible. The film itself has got really big issues when it comes to any sort of minority, basically. I mean, he throws money at, at women, like when he waves money at those girls at one point and that's just, yeah, Yeah, horrible. and when he's like, pursuing trim it's basically yeah. he thinks all the vietnamese women look the same he keeps going oh look, there she is again there she is again yeah it claims to be a war comedy did it make you laugh no bruno kirby made me laugh yeah i mean i watched it before christmas as well and i've had a lot happen since then so there are a couple of notes in here that i'm not entirely sure if there was something that annoyed me or something <laughs> that i thought were funny and i can't remember i've written beach blanket bingo down and I don't know what that's about <laughs> so that either made me laugh or it didn't no not really I have to say not really no I, don't, I, I actually can't remember even one time when I laughed watching it Mick I think the Bruno Kirby uh, bit made me laugh as well and it's a bit that I really remember and I also think the sort of infectious nature of when you see the troops responding to him mm. made me smile and so I was I was like that is like that humanitarian aspects of it of th these guys just need someone to boost their morale that made me smile and there are bits of gems in some of his lines like that infectious energy but yeah it is ruined by all the stuff that if they took out would make it a Fucking trailer. Okay. <laughs> Good morning, Vietnam. Rated or dated? Yeah, dated. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a dated for me. Dated for me also. It's a while since we've had a full... Oh, wait a minute. What am I talking about? We watched Spice World, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> full agreement there. Yeah. <laughs> Jenster, what are we watching next week? It's not me. That's all right. I picked something. So I thought... Mickey, I might test your... Uh, you Remember you made a statement about how you love how Mike White writes, but you don't 
like how he writes for women. I have issues with some of his writing for women, like the happy prostitute theme. I thought I'd fully put that to the test. We're going to watch 2003's The Good Girl. Mm, Exciting. Never seen it. Standard Issue for All Women.